had some delegates from our church, uh, went to a conference, uh, gen- our conference's general assembly. So I don't know if you know that we're in uh, a conference of churches, uh, the Holiness Conference. And uh, we met up north um, in Walnut Creek and for the last few days and discussed conference, um, conference priorities, conference uh, issues. And it was a real blessed time. Uh, our church had, uh, in addition to Pastor Corey, myself, and Pastor Yasu um, from the Nichigo department, we had uh, five delegates, four from English and, and one from the Nichigo department. And uh, so there was a good group of us there. And um, our English delegates were uh, Dr. Mike Tanaka, Bob Smith, um, Matt Tambara, and Shiori Sakamoto. And so we had a good time. We had a good time fellowshipping and getting to know the other churches um, but you'll be interested to know that the, the General Assembly, the General Conference, had, uh, had very much of a West Covina feel in some ways, because um, our own uh, retired pastor, Pastor Rick Iwanaga, um, was really facilitating much of the, um, the assembly time and, and leading a lot of the agenda. And, uh, and so, um, you know, we had that, and... Uh, um, Andrew Todd, our church administrator, is very involved in uh, supporting the conference and uh, working in the uh, conference administration office. Um, and uh, one thing I wanted to share, though, was that um, uh, I think it was on Friday, um, we had this, the, the special uh, treat from Pastor Corey, and he did one of his character sketches. Um, and, you know, you probably, if you've been at the church for a while, you may have seen him do it. Um, and he did a character sketch on Nicodemus. Um, and uh, I think, I don't know if this is the first time they've had, like, pastors get up and display their talents <laughs> at General Assembly. Um, and, uh, but uh, his presentation of Nicodemus was powerful. Uh, it was really powerful. Uh, he was on fire, right? <laughs> Um, and he, uh, he shared how Nicodemus went to Jesus in the middle of the night as a Pharisee to ask about being born again and what does that mean. And, um, and he shared the gospel message. And, uh, um, you know, everybody was just like, you know, um, on the edge of their seat. And, and so uh, I just share that because the conference itself was a blessing um, and that God is at, at work in our conference and um, so I encourage you to, to pray for the conference and to, uh, to talk to the delegates and, and ourselves about, um, you know, what happened and um, what the Lord is doing. Um, on June 25th, 1967, so I'm going back a little ways now, um, the Beatles, uh, who remembers the Beatles? Okay. <laughs> I have to ask that question, right? Uh, 67 was quite a while ago. Um, at the height of their popularity, the Beatles performed a song that was broadcast live via satellite um, to over 400 million people in 25 countries. And that may not sound impressive to you young guys, um, you know, in this day and age, but in 1967, with no internet, no cable TV, no YouTube, you know, none of the streaming devices, it was a big deal. And the title of the song that they sang was, All You Need Is Love. And the band's manager 
Brian Epstein was later quoted in a magazine as saying, it was an inspired song to give the world a clear message that love is everything. Love is everything. Last week we started our sermon series on the counterfeit gods. And, and so we're going through, uh, some of us, some of you have this, this book by Tim Keller. We're going through this book. We're following along and we have a, um, a growth group study guide as well. And, and if you don't have that and you're not in a growth group but you're interested in following along or you're interested in a growth group, the study guide's at the pretzel kiosk. So I invite you to, to, to just grab one and follow along with us as we go through the sermon series as, as well as study these, these topics in the growth group. Um, but we learned that idols, counterfeit gods, right? This is really about idols. We learned that idols are not simply objects made of wood and stone or found in the jungle. They're not carved images that we fashion with our hands and place on a pedestal and bow down before. Our idols today are much more sophisticated than that. Idols today are things that we're familiar with. We see them all around us. Although we may not recognize that they're idols because they're so ingrained in our society. In fact, our idols today are some of the best things in life. Now, we can identify the idols sometimes that are um, vices, that are sinful problems, that are things we know we should not be walking towards and holding on to. But sometimes the, the, the greatest challenge for us, and especially in the church, is to make the best things in life our idols. Things like love, family, career, success, prosperity. All good things which we have turned into supreme things. Things that we bow down to things that we worship, things we look to for redemption. And maybe the greatest of all of these things is, is love. Today, the search for true love is an idol of epic proportions. We see this in almost every stage of life, the desire for another human being to validate us, to complete us, to give us meaning. And at its worst, mankind will forsake all other things, including God himself, in order to find fulfillment in love, sex, and romance. You see, captured in the Beatles song all those years ago is the disordered heart of man to ignore his creator and make love the most important thing in life. And the Beatles didn't start this, right? They weren't, <laughs> they weren't the ones who started this, this train of thought. They captured it. They articulated it in the free love period in the 1960s. But this problem goes all the way back to Genesis. And so before we uh, turn to Genesis this morning, uh, let's, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father God, I pray that you would just open our eyes, Lord, to the idols in our lives, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, as it works in us, would touch us, convict us, Lord, where we need convicting, would enlighten us, where we need to see the things in our lives, Lord, that we have put before you. 
put in front of you, prioritized ahead of you. Lord, and we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Um, Help us not just to learn and to fill our heads with knowledge, but to grow and to reach out to you and to draw near to you. And Lord, may you um, minister to us wherever we're at. And I pray that you would bless uh, these words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So the story of, uh, we're going to look at Genesis 29 this morning. Genesis 29, so if you want to turn there. But the story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah is one of the more complicated love stories in the Bible. It opens with Jacob on the run from his brother Esau. And if you know the story, you know that Jacob, he, he, he tricked his father Isaac, and he dressed up like Esau when Isaac was old and nearly blind, and he dressed up like Esau, and he stole the blessing, the family blessing that was to go to Esau as the firstborn son. So when Esau found out about this, he wanted to kill Jacob, and so Jacob was forced to flee. He left his home, he left the family, and he was forced to flee, and he went to this area, this region called Haran. And he went there to see if he could stay with his uncle, his uncle Laban. So let me read uh, Genesis 29, 13 through 30, Um, and it should be on the screen as well. It says, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your youngest daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him. Because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. And when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give It's not our custom here to give your younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. And Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel 
was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban for another seven years. So Jacob finds Laban. He goes to this area. He's on the run. He finds Laban, his uncle, and immediately they're introduced to his two daughters. We're introduced to his two daughters, Leah and Rachel. Now, verse 17 says that Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And so while Bible scholars um, aren't really sure what it means that Leah had weak eyes, I think they all agree that it was about her appearance and that somehow maybe in her eyes or her face, okay, she was unattractive. And this was in direct contrast to her sister, her younger sister, Rachel, who it says was strikingly beautiful. <clears throat> so when you think about it, just to start with, it's such a difficult situation. Right? Two sisters. One is hot, gorgeous, gets all the, gets all the attention. Right? And the other, not so much. Right? Probably got a lot of rejection as she grew up. And not surprisingly, then, Jacob falls madly in love, it says, with Rachel. And he falls, he falls hard. It's like love at first sight. And he agrees to work for seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. Seven years. This is um, double or triple or more what would have normally been expected for someone to work to, to earn a dowry to marry the daughter. Okay, but Laban, um, he manipulates the situation. And in a strange twist of events, he tricks Jacob into marrying his younger daughter, Leah. I'm sorry, his older daughter, Leah, by substituting her for Rachel on their wedding night. Now you ask, could this actually happen? <laughs> how, how could he right, marry the wrong woman, make love to the wrong woman? One author I read said it was probably a combination of too much wine, a lot of wedding veils, <laughs> and bad lighting. So when the lights went out, it was dark. <laughs> and, and it seems a little bit like poetic justice here. Because if you know the story of Jacob, you know he tricked his own father by disguising himself as his brother. Right? He disguised his, his identity. And in the same way, this switcheroo is done, and he is tricked into marrying another woman, the sister. But all of this sets up this crazy sibling rivalry, love triangle type thing. What we see here is that Jacob, the deceiver, is deceived. Verse 25 says, when morning came, there was Leah. Right? So Leah's lying next to him, and then he runs, and he goes to Laban, and he says, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And while Laban is the culprit, right, he's to blame. He's the one orchestrating this strange situation. When I say that Jacob is deceived, the real deception is that Jacob believes in his heart. Getting Rachel is the answer to all of his problems. He has made her into an idol. He was alone, 
Apart from his family, his brother wanted to kill him, but he didn't turn to God. He thought, if I could just have Rachel, everything will be all right. And this is how our society, this is how we approach romantic love today, isn't it? We put all of our hopes and dreams into that one person. Or we obsess, if we don't have that one person in mind, we obsess about finding the perfect partner. Tim Keller says that you can distinguish your idols by what you dream about. And I'm sure Jacob went to sleep at night, working those seven years, dreaming about Rachel. The passage says he worked those first seven years, but it seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And while this sounds romantic, it's really an example of idolatry, an example of a misplaced love. When we put our kids to bed at night, uh, we want them to think of good things. You know, we don't want them to have nightmares and wake us up in the middle of the night. (laughs) And I remember when our youngest uh, daughter, Ellie, was about five or six, we put her to bed and we tell her to think good thoughts. And she would close her eyes and she'd smile. And we we would say, what are you thinking about? And she would say, candy. (laughs) And now that's cute when you're five, um, but I would be very concerned if she was still dreaming about candy when she's like 20. (laughs) But what do you think about when you close your eyes? When you think of the future, what effect does your faith in Christ have on your dreams and your heart's deepest desires? Colossians 3.2 says, Since your life is hidden in Christ, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, idols, idols deceive. They take the place of God, and they promise joy and fulfillment, but like false advertising, they never fully deliver because they can't. Alexis de Tocqueville says, and this quote is at the bottom of your your handout, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. Only Christ can. And this is the problem with putting our hopes into worldly things or to placing our dreams into another human being. Next we see that Jacob is enslaved. So he's deceived and he's enslaved. First he works seven years for Rachel and doesn't get her. Right then in verse 27, he commits to Leah as his wife, something he didn't want to do or plan to do. And then he commits to work for Laban an additional seven years for Rachel. Why does he agree to do this? Why does he he stand for this? I'll tell you why. Because this is what you do for your God. This is what you do. You do whatever it takes if you love your God with all your heart and your soul, your mind, and strength. Unfortunately, it's not the Creator God that He's serving, it's Rachel. 
She has become his God. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. Idols deceive and idols enslave. They become gods that make you do things you wouldn't otherwise do. See, Jacob, he was a shrewd, crafty guy. When he lived at home, he not only stole the family blessing from his older brother, but he also tricked him into giving him his birthright. And you can see this in Genesis 27. Jacob's name actually means deceiver. But here, he's so obsessed with Rachel that he'll do literally anything. Tim Keller says, An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, on it without a second thought. This is exactly what Jacob's doing. Keller says, even worse, and, and, and listen to this, he says, even worse, an idolatrous attachment can, you, can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It grips our heart that way and our lives. Let me read just this last part of the passage here. Um, and uh, this is chapter 29. I'll read from verse 31 to uh, verse 8 in chapter 30. It says, When the Lord saw Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And she named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a, as a wife, and Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister, and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. So we'll, we'll stop there. Not because Rachel has won or because the story is over, but because this drama between the three of them, it goes on and on. <laughs> it, keeps on it keeps on going. And it was actually painful. It was painful to study this passage and to see the discontentment in each person's life as they made idols of each other. 
We've already talked about Jacob, who we know he's trying to fill his emptiness in life through love and sexual intimacy with Rachel. And he spent all his time waiting and dreaming. But in the end, we see that it didn't turn out the way he expected. It never does. The, rea- the reality never lives up to the expectation. Rachel, who was pursued and loved by Jacob, you think that they at least would be happy because he loves her and she's trying to please him. She was also not happy. Early in their marriage, she was not able to conceive, and she watched Leah, her sister, give birth to four sons. So even though Rachel was beautiful and she was shown favor her entire life, she still felt empty, inadequate, unfulfilled. We saw in chapter 30, verse 1, It says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. She was jealous of her unattractive, rejected sister. (laughs) She became jealous of her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. And Jacob's response is interesting. He says in verse 2, it says he became angry with her and said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children. See, in their frustration, in their disillusionment, in their realization that this isn't what they thought it might be or what they hoped it would be, they became angry and dissatisfied with each other. And then we turn to to Leah, poor Leah, unaffirmed by her father, rejected by others, and then treated like a consolation prize. By Jacob. In verse 32, she gives birth to a son and says, Surely my husband will love me now. But he doesn't. Then in verse 34, she says the same thing after giving birth to her third son. She's enslaved by a deep longing for a love and identity that affirms who she is. And a painting a picture here, you see in the passage. Do you see the deception of idols here? The sad desperation in each of their lives, all looking to each other to fulfill their need for love and affirmation. See, God is love, but love is not God. We live in a culture that makes it easy to mistake these two things. The lie says, if you find true love, then your life will have meaning and fulfillment. So much so that romantic relationships, marriage, partnership becomes a type of salvation, taking on almost redemptive expectations. And so we look to love and sex. The world, society, looks to love and sex for a sense of meaning and transcendence because it doesn't know God. But as Christians, as believers, as those following the Lord, we know that these are things that are found only in relationship with Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 8 through 10 says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. People, this is where we derive our value. This is where we find our identity. Affirmation for our worth. That the one true God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live and die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins because he loves us. And this is not something that sex and romance can provide. It's not something that a partner can provide. I read somewhere that romantic love is a wonderful gift, but it's a terrible God. Do not let it be your master. You know, I've worked very hard this morning trying to reduce or diminish the idolization or the glorification of romantic love right, in our worldview. But don't get me wrong. Love, romance, sex, these are blessings from God. They're extremely important parts of our lives and, re- and our relationships here on earth. My wife, Renee, made me say that. but when we reflect on this passage the problem is not that we love others too much a healthy affectionate love for others is needed loving less is not the answer it's that we sometimes we love God too little we make the other things the other person the other relationship our treasure, when Jesus should be our treasure. I was listening to a, a podcast on this topic um, and, uh, by Pastor John Piper. And so um, Pastor John Piper was asked um, by somebody, how do I keep my dating relationship from becoming an idol? How do I keep it in the proper perspective and priority with my relationship with the Lord. And he asked these three questions. And I think these questions, um, they're kind of geared towards when we think about dating and romantic relationships, but I think they apply to any love relationship that we have. Our spouse, our children, and family, others that we care for. Question one, how does your love and devotion for the other person compare to your love and devotion for God? This is a check to see if you've put the other person above God in your life. Is the relationship an expression of your faith in Christ? Where is Christ in your dating relationship, in your marriage, in your approach to sex and romance? Is he Lord? Third, does the relationship strengthen your faith in Christ? Is the relationship, is it edifying? More important than, is this someone you can take home to your parents to meet? Is this someone you would want Jesus to meet?
As we wrap up, I want to look at, uh, have us look at one, back at one verse. And it's Genesis 29, verse 35. And if there's a silver lining in this passage, this is it. Genesis 29, 35, it says, She, Leah, conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, so this was her fourth son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah. And Judah means, I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. See, after her first three sons were born, Leah looked for Jacob to give her attention because she gave him kids. She gave him the sons that he wanted, something that Rachel couldn't do at that time. But after Judah is born, it seems that something has changed in her heart. She no longer looks to Jacob for her love and worth. Instead, she praises the Lord. It seems she has finally realized that fulfilling God's purpose and giving him praise is more satisfying than the intention of any man. See, God is our true bridegroom. He is the lover of our souls. He is the husband to the husbandless. He is the father to the fatherless. And we are his beloved. And let me close by reading just this last paragraph from, the, from this book, uh, one paragraph from this book. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll close in prayer. It says, The way forward out of despair is to discern the idols of our hearts and our culture. But this will not be enough. The only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross in Mount Calvary is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Let's pray. Father, we want to just get our hearts right with you, Lord, and get our lives right with you. And um, I know it takes more than a message. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, again, open our eyes, Father, to how we are to approach these things. Lord, as redeemed people, as your beloved, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and uh, guidance. Um, help us, Lord, not to make idols of the things around us, but to look to you, to set our eyes, our hearts, and our minds on you. Um, and we thank you for loving us first. We thank you for your love, your mercy, your grace to us. And we pray that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.